Now, uh, I would like to talk a little bit about the black feminist Marxist tradition. Are you ready? I'm ready. We're waiting for this. All right. Hell yeah. So um, one of the thinkers that is highlighted in this reader is a woman named Claudia Jones. So uh, Claudia Jones was a Trinidadian who immigrated to the U.S. in 1924 she joined the Communist Party because she admired their defense of the Scottsboro Boys, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, they were nine young black men falsely accused of raping white women in the South. Um, so that kind of puts the lie to the idea that only, quote unquote, class white demands are going to draw people to the communist movement. Moving on. Uh, she grew in influence throughout her career. She became a writer, an editor, a speaker and an organizer. Um, she was deported to the UK for being a commie in 1955, and then she died in 1964 and was buried next to Marx himself in Highgate Cemetery, as if you need any better Marxist credentials than that. So um, her most famous piece was An End to the Neglect of the Problems of the Negro Woman, exclamation point, which was published in 1949. In this work, she argued that black women are triply oppressed as women, as workers, and as black people. She says it is a huge problem that black women are relegated to domestic work and it's normalized all over culture uh, with quote-unquote mammy imagery, right? The idea that black women are naturally servile, they belong in white people's homes, taking care of their kids, all that bullshit. So she says that uh, black women's status relative to black men fell after emancipation as families were reunited under one roof and black men were granted domination over women and the family as they were slotted into a patriarchal U.S. society. Uh, but she says black women have great potential for militancy and the bourgeoisie recognize that. And that's why they have worked so hard to keep them oppressed. But also more recently, as of this writing, um, they try to recuperate them with symbolic posts or quote-unquote, representation in the halls of government as well as Wall Street. Um, she writes that black women are active in civic societies, but they are not heavily represented in party or trade union leadership, and that is a problem. She says unions need to do better at fighting for the rights of domestic workers and also the right of black women to have better jobs. And they actually did this in several instances. Um, and part, of this is, uh, part of this article, she takes the suffragettes to task, those uh, white feminists we all know and love because they have really failed to recognize that their struggle is tied together with the struggle of black men and women. And here's a quote. She writes, a developing consciousness on the woman question today, therefore, must not fail to recognize that the Negro question in the United States is prior to and not equal to the woman question. That only to the extent that we fight all chauvinist expressions and actions as regards the Negro people and fight for the full equality of the Negro people, can women as a whole advance their struggle for equal rights. For the progressive women's movement, the Negro woman, who combines in her status the worker, the Negro, and the woman, is the vital link to this heightened political consciousness. To the extent, further, that the cause of the Negro woman worker is promoted, she will be enabled to take her rightful place in the Negro proletarian leadership of the national liberation movement, and by her active participation, contribute to the entire American working class, whose historic mission is the achievement of a socialist America, the final and full guarantee of women's emancipation. So basically the idea that when black women are free, 
everyone will be free because they are the most uh, oppressed in this society. And we can see this thread picked up later by um, Angela Davis and the Combahee River Collective and others. So she talks a little bit about black women's treatment within the Communist Party and how it needs to get better. Um, how many white communists will say they believe in black liberation, but they still don't want their kids intermarrying and they still employ black women domestics for basically poverty wages. And she says it's on white members of the party, as well as black men, to treat black women better and welcome them into the space that they become leaders. And some of what she's describing here kind of sounds like microaggressions, right? Black women show up, people say condescending shit to them, and they don't really feel welcome. And yeah. it's... Uh, it feels it feels very relevant to conversations that we are still having, unfortunately, on the socialist left. So uh, she then talks a little bit about black women's role in struggles against war and imperialism. And she says the strong capacities, militancy and organizational talents of Negro women can, if well utilized by our party, be a powerful lever for bringing forward Negro workers, men and women, as the leading forces of the Negro People's Liberation Movement for cementing Negro and Wall Street imperialism and for rooting the party among the most exploited and oppressed sections of the working class and its allies. Boom. So uh, do you agree with her analysis here? And uh, what role should black feminism play in the struggle for the liberation of all people? Wow. You know, um, first and foremost, uh, yes, I agree with the assessment of Sister Claudia Jones, our comrade leader. Um, she was so forward thinking and such a visionary. Um, what you read was an, from an essay, I believe, came from the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And many of the words that she spoke and she wrote um, could be applied for today. And, um, you know, and particularly that I love the line, she says that um, not to be satisfied with, uh, you know, black women leadership in the halls of power of the, of the of Wall Street, which I think is very apropos, I think, of today. Um, there's a couple of things for me is it's like, I mean, I mean, I think a couple of things for me is that is getting to our understanding was that one is that she was she was definitely you know in you know advanced in her thinking in terms of considering you know um, this subject of race, class, and gender, which some people call intersectionality these days. Um, and you know, and looking at them from from a, from a multiple levels of of those 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 ends. Um, I think also, you know, given that. It allowed for, um, you know, uh, another level of organizing uh, for um, radicals. Um, there's, there's always been a tendency, a lot of times, to focus on the industrial proletariat, um, and you know, and you know, and, and, and all that that carries within it a specific type of masculinist type of portrayal of who is a worker. Um, but I think that her analysis around race, class, and gender allows for um, thinking through organizing amongst folks who are whose labor is very important in terms of in terms of capitalism, specifically on the domestic front. Um, you know, the, the the people who are maids, the people who are women who are maids, who are domestic workers, people who are even sex workers, um, to be considered 
as worthy and as as necessary as for organizing. Um, I think that another major part of our Claudia Jones's thinking is culture. Um, you mentioned a lot about Claudia Jones taking Communist Party members to task for um, giving lip service to Black liberation, but um, mistreating Black comrades, or as you put it, microaggressions. And in in a lot of left, I mean, in the, in the Marxist circles that I grew up in, there was a term called white chauvinism, right? Um, similar to male chauvinism, um, is the idea that white that you know that you know internally you have a belief that white people are inherently better than people of color or black people, um, and that expresses itself in a social way. So you know you might um, ask a black person to do the outreach, but then not ask the black person to do the theoretical work. Um, you might ask a, a black person to be the front of the organization, but then not really ask them to do the, you know, the more intellectual tasks that, that are assigned. And, you know, and, and, that, and those are things such as white chauvinism, or you might just say things, um, for example, say like a racist joke, and then get mad and say, well, you know, why can't you take a joke, right? Um, those things are like symbolic of ways in which black people are, um, you know, belittled um, and oppressed, you know, within like, you know, particular specific spaces, not just leftist spaces, but I think on the job as well. I mean, I mean, there's a whole like, like whole entire conversation around like black hair, right? And the ways in which black people have to like, you know, have to regulate their own hair, you know, in professional, because, you know, their hair is considered quote unquote not professional. You know, those examples are microaggressions or white chauvinism. But then on a positive side of, 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 of Claudia Jones' contribution was that when she was deported from, from the United States to England um, at the height of the Cold War, um, she landed um, in the black section of Notting Hill um, which was mostly West Indian, and she's one of the founders and one of the one of the one of the um, folks who who developed the Nottingham Festival, which ended up becoming the West Indian Festival, um, which 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 was actually copied and developed in the United States as well. One of the largest uh, parades in New York City, the West Indian Day Parade. Um, the, the roots of the West Indian Day Parade and the roots of, you know, the roots of the, the, the modern Nottingham Carnival movement come from Claudia Jones. So, oh, hell yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, so so she's responsible. So Claudia Jones is not just rad in terms of, like, being at the forefront of, like, intersectionality and race, class, and gender um, expression, but she's also in the forefront of, like, Rihanna, <laughs> she just keeps getting better and better exactly and then you mentioned the fact that she was born she's buried next to Marx um, she's actually born, buried to the left of Marx Ooh. it's very symbolic 
you know, considering her position. So she's she's to the left of Marx. That's a good place to be. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of the cultural stuff gets a bad rap sometimes from uh, certain kinds of socialists because uh, they think it's neoliberal or whatever. Anything that uh, anything that isn't strictly class politics, right? But like, just because this cultural stuff uh, is used in shitty ways by liberals who don't have class politics uh, doesn't mean that it can't be used in good ways by leftists who do have class politics. It just seems like fairly obvious to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't really understand why that is the case, because I feel that people who don't take take account into culture, like not only do a disservice in terms of the movement, but do a disservice in terms of Marxism. Um, you know, because I think that, you know, when you talk about Marx, I mean, Marx was really, Marx was into, like, science and art and religion. And, you know, obviously he was an atheist, but to discuss religion, talked a lot about, like, you know, was into literary criticism, talked a lot about spirit and ghosts and specters. And there's a way in which, like, you know, anthropology, um, biology, it wasn't just a matter of this economics, right? It wasn't just a matter of just understanding things on the economic side. So, you know, in an essay like the thesis of Fürmbach, you know, he said he lays out materialism is about social relationships, right? He didn't say that materialism is about economics. In fact, that whole entire essay on the thesis of Fürmbach is a critique of the one-sidedness of materialism, right? looking at materialism only through a single lens. So I think that, you know, when you're talking about Karl Marx, you're talking about someone who said, nothing human is alienate, alien to me. So culture has to be at the forefront of our work. And I think that, you know, I think in, in relationship to the black feminist radical tradition, culture is, you know, is, is like these, these essays, these conversations, these ways of being, are developed through the cultural forms of sharing across the table. So, like, you know, like, you know, Barbara, Barbara Smith, you know, Beverly Smith, Angela Day, you know, all these folks were, like, deeply, intimately involved, you know, you know, socially together, you know, at, at you know, saying, at, you know, not only in the picket lines, but also at the kitchen table in theorizing on this work. So I think culture has to be... Um, you know, culture has to be, you know, like Amir Kalkabal once said, culture is a weapon, and it's not just to in- instrumentalize it, but to show that co- there's a centrality in terms of culture at, at you know, at, at its peak, you know, and um, at what, what we need to do, okay? That makes sense to me. Right on. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah, like, um, you think about even a phrase like black is beautiful that was used and popularized by the Black Panthers, you know, some some like brochalist might take a look at that today and be like, that's so neoliberal. But like, no, like it seems pretty obvious to me how that would strengthen uh, black people's ability to fight uh, if they're if they have some sense of, of culture and of respect and they're standing up against people telling them that they're ugly for not like conforming to Eurocentric standards of beauty. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, and it's like, you know, these things are always, these things are always in contention because, you know, the ruling class would like actually like take some, some of the ideas of, 
of the revolutionary movement and and, and reappropriate it for their own uh, for their own for their own purposes. And but that doesn't necessarily mean that those demands and those ideas don't have validity on their own, right? You know, I say, and I think that it's us it's up to us as you know people who are creating cultural who are cultural workers or cultural thinkers to really think through like what does it mean to like come up with slogans and come up with ideas and come up with things that really kind of like make people move and kind of sharpen sharpen our own understanding of what of, 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 of solidarity in terms of us versus them right and I think that you know so once you know once because because when you say black is beautiful that's a negation of a lot of, of, of Western European standards of beauty right and when you say black is beautiful um you know saying you're issuing a, a call for solidarity you know saying amongst oppressed people right um you know um so I don't so I, I think that sometimes you know we get a little twisted in terms of saying that because I think that um you know I think sometimes you know you know you know I actually don't know why <laughs> it just seems to make sense to me. But who am I to say, right? I just think that it's just like, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we all know there's all those, like, corporate uh, branding campaigns where, like, Dove yeah, supports the, the beauty thing. of Black women or whatever. Yeah, but, like... That's, but that's the thing, too, because I think that the thing about it is I think that, you know, you don't want to be to the right of, like, Avon, right? So, like, Avon understands that, you know, mm-hmm. to get to the Black community, we need to, like, organize amongst Black women, and if you're over here saying that you know that's a bad thing, then like you know, then then you're not you're not you're not moving the conversation forward because like anyone would tell you, you know, like you know, like um, you know, the idea that you know, like the, like you know, it's it's a it's a fight of of contestation, right? And it's a fight of just like of of our politics and censoring our politics, which is a radical liberatory project, you know, saying to emancipate all people. So you want to be in a mix. You want to be in the in 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 the space of of, of building and developing and like in, in building and developing like solidarities amongst all all people. And I think that that's that's super important. And and that that also means that internally within organizations and also within like you know your organizing culture, you're making people feel welcomed. You know what I'm saying? And you're making it. You know you're making a special effort. To like welcome people and make them feel like um, like included in the work that you're doing, and you're also doing the work of like kind of pushing people where they've never been pushed before. I can tell you a story right now. Like when I was growing up, and I first got involved in the movement, someone approached me and was like, "I want you to write like a, a two thousand word article about hip hop and the connection between hip hop and Marxism." And I was seventeen years old, and 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 you know. He might as well have said 20,000 words or 25,000 words. But the fact that he gave me the opportunity to do that strengthened my ability to take leadership. It gave me the, the, the it, it flexed muscles that I didn't even know I had. And I've seen it time and time again where, like, you know, where I'll, I, I will purposely put somebody up who's very shy to speak up at a public rally and see them like be able to blossom and to grow, right? And so this work that we're doing is not just the work of just like, you know, um, of just like simply 
uh, you know, fighting against all oppressors, but it's also a work of like internal consciousness raising and internal consciousness building and people coming, people coming out of their own shadows and becoming themselves. Because the thing about it is if you're black, if you're a woman, if you're a racial minority, if you're a sexual minority in society, you're consistently told to shut up. And you're consistently told that your, your experiences are not valid, right? And I think that, you know, I think that part of giving people political meaning is to say that your, your feelings are valid, but that your oppression is also connected to the oppression of others. And that, you know, in the, in, in, in the fight for freeing other people, you're freeing yourself. And that's why, in a lot of ways, many of the leaders of the gay and lesbian liberation movement came out of the civil rights struggle. Because after they fought within the civil rights struggle, they were like, what about me? What about my identity? What about the question around the things that I've been holding on to all my life? And I think that that's something that's super powerful. And there's a ton of the literature that explains it. Same thing with the women's movement. Many women who participated in the civil rights movement began to say, you know what? You know what? I see my liberation linked in terms of the liberation of black folks. And therefore, like, I'm going to take a stand around things that are oppressing me as well. I feel that. So speaking of people who are black and beautiful, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Angela Davis, queen, black Marxist, feminist, abolitionist, all around cool person. So Angela Davis is such a towering figure that it's hard to even know where to slot her into any reader. Um, In this particular reader, she's in the section on black feminism. Uh, She was born in Birmingham in 1944. She grew up in the Dynamite Hill neighborhood where whites would literally try to bomb black middle class families out of their houses and get them to move. Her mom was a civil rights activist and friends with communists. Uh, Angela marched with the Girl Scouts against segregation, and she credits the Girl Scouts with part of her political development. I don't know why the Girl Scouts are so much better than the Boy Scouts, but they are. Uh, She attended segregated schools She did her junior year of high school in New York City and got recruited to a communist youth group at that point in time. Uh, For college, she went to Brandeis. She was one of just a few black students in her class, and she studied there under Herbert Marcuse, which is pretty cool. Uh, She did a year in Frankfurt, and then she followed Marcuse to UCLA for her graduate work. Now, in Angela Davis's academic career, UCLA tried and failed to fire her multiple times, first for just being a communist and later for her speeches against the police. But a court ruled that they couldn't do that. Um, She was a supporter of the Soledad brothers, who were three brothers accused of killing a prison guard. And she was charged with multiple crimes in relation to an incident at the Marin County Courthouse, where one of the brothers tried to kidnap a judge and compel his brother's release. Um, Several people were killed in this incident. And some of the guns used belonged to her, but she was ultimately acquitted and released. Booyah. So Angela Davis, uh, she traveled to Cuba. She went to the USSR as well as East Germany. Um, She ran for vice president twice on the Communist Party USA ticket. She's written many, many books on topics related to black feminism, imperialism, prison abolition, Marxism, etc., She was a founder of Critical Resistance, an organization dedicated to prison and police abolition. And she never officially joined the Black Panther Party, but she was heavily associated with them. 
And before we dive into some of her work, I will say I really appreciate her take on violence. Uh, Maybe we can even plug this in. It's like a pretty famous interview or speech she gave where they're asking her about the violent tactics of the Panthers or whatever. And she's like, how can you talk? Don't talk to me about violence. Like the, the world, the system is violent to black people already. You could be killed just for walking down the street while black. So, you know, it, it's not like we're introducing violence where there was none before. So two of her most famous works. Um, the first one I'm going to go over is Reflections on the Black Woman's Role in the Community of Slaves. So in this piece, she critiques the idea that slavery created a black matriarchal society saying slave women could not be matriarchs because they had no power. However, black women did play a very important role because slave women did the social reproductive tasks in the slave quarters, which was the only labor done by slaves that benefited the slaves themselves by helping them survive and also helped them remember their humanity and foment resistance to slavery in both large and small ways, uh, which it was much harder to do when they were out in the fields uh, working on the clock. So one irony of slavery, she writes, is that in making slave women work alongside men, it, quote, released them from the chains of the myth of femininity. Uh, Even when they were pregnant, they were treated in the same brutal way as the men were. Um, She said slave women could also realize their power through the act of production and see that their labor was what created value for the masters, uh, something that free women relegated to the domestic sphere did not get to do. Um, She says black women played an important role in communities of fugitive slaves They protected fugitives, fomented resistance, and planned uprisings. And the oppressors, they recognized black women's power, which is why slave women were often punished more harshly than men for their role in the uprisings. Um, Also, it's very well documented that slave women were often raped by their owners, and this was a method of counterinsurgency, which we can see in colonial situations all over the world. This is a way of exerting the master's power over them and fully expropriating their labor power, including the social reproductive labor of literally bearing slave children. Um, it also reified the slave woman's position within patriarchy by reducing her to the status of a female animal. Um, she writes about rape as a kind of terrorism towards the black community as a whole. And she says the role of the black women, uh, of the black woman as a worker and fomenter of resistance continued after slavery as well as black women were still forced to work in terrible jobs, oppressed by capitalism, racism, and patriarchy all at once. So that's about the long and short of that uh, that piece. Do you uh, have any comments before I move on to her prison book? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things really quickly. I mean, so, I mean, the the black women in the community of slaves article was extraordinary on two levels. One is that it's a is a is a clapback against um, Senator Daniel P- Patrick Moynihan's essay, "The Problem of the Negro Family," in which he tries to link black poverty to a lack of black fathers in the in the black household, um, which is a consistent myth that's been perpetrated for the past like 50, 60 years since um, Moynihan's essay was published um, as a way of undermining the uh, uh, um, you know the rights of you know black women to access welfare, um, or, or you know or, or, or you know food stamps or any type of support, um, and she writes this essay, um, you know, as a clear response to that. And it was actually published in the Black Scholar, which which is still today a very prominent 
uh, black academic journal. And the second thing that's extraordinary about that specific article that uh, Professor Davis wrote is that she wrote it in jail. Um, you know, and so she wrote, she writes this essay um, in prison. Um, and so then, so she, you know, as you mentioned, she was arrested um, in connection with the um, um, uh, 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 San Marin uh, uh, attempts to uh, liberate prisons from San Marin County, in which uh, George, um, Jonathan Jackson, who was the brother of George Jackson, uh, one of the uh, prominent Soledad brother and prominent prison activist was killed alongside a judge and two other prisoners. Um, she was she was um, um, accused of um, of uh, aiding and abetting in that attempt because Jonathan Jackson had used her shotgun, um, and uh, you know, and so she was facing the the electric chair um, in California. Um, Ronald Reagan wanted to kill her, um, and you know, but in the midst of all that, like black, you know, she's 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 writing, she's developing. And she's developing her own voice within jail as not just an academic, but as a revolutionary thinker. And I think that that's super important to note that, you know, in jail, she's producing and that. Um, fun fact about that trial and that situation, um, there was a worldwide campaign to free Angela Davis. And um, hundreds of thousands of East German school children sent letters to the judge demanding Angela Davis' freedom. Uh, so many letters, in fact, that the mail service in Southern California had to get shut down um, because they received so many letters in support of Angela Davis. Nice. We uphold the U.S. Postal Service, folks. So <laughs> that was some very good information on Angela Davis. Thank you. Um, so I'd like, before we go, to highlight another book of hers, another work of hers titled are prisons obsolete from 2003. So we know the prison industrial complex as it currently exists is a relatively recent phenomenon. And in this book, she wants to examine why it arose. Um, she really interrogates the historical role of prisons in society and how they've been used to uphold slavery, white supremacy and capitalism. So uh, she writes about how the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery had an asterisk whereby slavery was still allowed if the enslaved person had been sentenced to prison. And this worked in conjunction with the black codes passed following emancipation that criminalized black people for pretty much anything, including talking back to white people or vagrancy. And prisons were able to force their prisoners to work. Um, they could even lease them out for things like coal mining, essentially recreating the conditions of slavery. So... Um, and, and we know that this continues to this day, right? Because prison labor is being used to fight the California wildfires, among other things. Right. So um, Angela Davis made the very interesting connection of prison sentences with capitalism's obsession with time, specifically labor time, as the basic unit of measurement used to control people's lives. She writes, the computability of state punishment in terms of time, days, months, years, resonates with the role of labor time as the basis of computing the value of capitalist commodities. Marxist theories of theorists of punishment have noted that precisely the historical period during which the commodity form arose is the era during which penitentiary sentences emerged as the primary form of punishment, which I think is a very interesting Marxist intervention. So 
uh, prisons were initially seen as a reform from the olden days of medieval torture and the days when jails were kind of lawless places where inmates could pass around alcohol freely and prostitutes came and went. Uh, now you had to sit alone in a cell, preferably with a Bible, and think about what you did. And the Quakers played a role in this. So thanks, Quakers. Um, Quaker reformers also retooled the prison experience for women to teach them things like cooking and sewing and basically forced them into the role selected for women by patriarchal society. But black women didn't always get this treatment uh, because they were often seen as, you know, not really women. And they were put in men's prisons and subjected to constant rape and sexual abuse by the guards. So she writes of, <clears throat> of the post-Cold War rise of the prison industrial complex, um, which is a thing she identifies as, quote, a set of symbiotic relationships among correctional communities, transnational corporations, media conglomerates, guards unions, and legislative and court agendas. So she says that after the Cold War, these uh, Cold War profiteers turned their attention to prisons at sites of profit extraction, where profit is extracted from the prison as a business itself, as well as from the forced labor of prisoners. Uh, she quotes a Norwegian criminologist saying, quote, companies that service the criminal justice system need sufficient quantities of raw materials to guarantee long-term growth. In the criminal justice system, the raw material is prisoners and industry will do what is necessary to guarantee a steady supply. For the supply of prisoners to grow, criminal justice policies must ensure a sufficient number of incarcerated Americans, regardless of whether crime is rising or the incarceration is necessary. Of course, prisons also serve the function of keeping surplus populations or those considered undesirable, uh, neutralized and disabled so they can't cause trouble in society or raise the next generation of freedom fighters. And sometimes this was even achieved by forced sterilization of women in prisons. So most of the book goes over just a, a really wide ranging analysis of what prison is and the purpose it serves. And then her final chapter, she lays out some solutions, right? She writes um, the creation of new institutions I feel like I set that up wrong. Whatever. <laughs> so, so in, in an effort to come to some sort of uh, some sort of solution to the problem, she writes, "The creation of new institutions that lay claim to the space now occupied by the prison can eventually start to crowd out the prison, so that it would inhabit increasingly smaller areas of our social and psychic landscape." So, what are these new institutions? She writes, uh, "The need for demilitarization of schools." revitalization of education at all levels, a healthcare system that provides free physical and mental care for all, and a justice system that is based on reparation and reconciliation rather than retribution, vengeance, and profit. And she's not just talking about any schools uh, or mental health treatment, right? Because education and mental health treatment should not be reproducing the structure of state domination seen in the prison system as they often do now. Um, everyone should have access to the kind of holistic and caring treatment that uh, rich people have right now. Um, she writes of the need for job and living wage programs, alternatives to the disestablished welfare program, community-based recreation, many other things. Um, also, she talks of the need to reduce people's unnecessary, un unnecessary contact with the police however we can by decriminalizing drug use, providing harm reduction and treatment programs for people who want them, decriminalizing immigration and sex work, and the act of fighting back against sexual violence and abuse, and because a lot of women are charged with crimes in relation to that, and introduce other ways to fight violence against women, both within intimate relationships and relationships with the state. Um, 
in this last part, she talks about in, in, in instances when people have committed violent harms against each other, uh, we need to introduce systems of community-based response, like restorative justice, to repair the harms that people have committed and really transform the conditions that led to them in the first place. And these will later be fleshed out by thinkers who came after her, like Maria Mikava, who are engaged in transformative justice work as a corollary to the work of prison abolition. And I realize that's a lot, <laughs> but um, I feel like it's very relevant, especially right now when people are really talking about defunding and abolishing the police uh, on a level and on a, on a scale in the public conversation that we haven't really seen before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I just like, you know, like I'm, I have to share a personal story. Um, um, I was at the Black Radical Congress in 1998. Um, and for those of you who don't know, the Black Radical Congress was a gathering of Black radical intellectuals, activists, um, you know, um, that was convened in Chicago, um, you know, primarily due to work of like folks like Bill Fletcher, but also the late Manning Marable. And Angela Davis was actually one of the signatories of the call for the Black Radical Congress. And I was there as one of 3,000 people in Chicago to meet, to discuss, like, that, that was, the, that was the, the, the term was to create a, 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 a radical, a, radi a black radical agenda for the 21st century. And I remember being there, and I remember one of the things that I saw there was um, uh, in, in the literature section, um, free internet. <laughs> so there's a big robust, like, you know, table with newspapers and magazines. There was this big eye, like golden kind of reddish eye that was painted, that was looking at me. That was a poster. And I was wondering what that was. And, you know, and I looked underneath, it said critical resistance, right? And that's the first time that I actually heard of this, this organization that was looking to uh, be built to talk about and discuss and to engage with this question around um, mass incarceration in the prison industrial complex. Um, like I said, this was 1998. This is at the height of the Clinton years. Um, when um, the rates of uh, black of incarceration, but specifically black incarceration, was uh, tremendously high. Um, you know, um, at one point I think there were more people in U.S. prisons than the population of Washington D.C. Um, and so, you know, and so, you know, the turn that Angela goes, you know, Professor Davis um, goes in terms of like thinking through this idea of abolition, you know, you know, is, is kind of like a like kind of a linear development from our own experiences of being experienced in prison, similar to what I talked about earlier, but also a response to what's happening in the world. And I think that in a lot of ways it kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, you know, these ideas that, you know, you develop as she's developed as a philosopher, she's interested in popularizing. So the things that you're talking about, um, recent, like you know, um, you know, in terms of like, um, you know, decarcerating schools or decarcerating mental health institutions, um, these today are, have become mainstream ideas. Um, you know, everyone knows what school to prison pipeline is. Everyone knows what mass incarceration is. 
Um, and so this was a result of, you know, putting like, you know, these ideas out there, but also developing within those ideas a mass movement to kind of like specifically point towards, um, you know, um, an organizing practice around that. And I think that the last point is really important because, you know, I think I think that um, one thing that's always super important is that in the, in the work of prison organizing is the work of two, of two things. One, having an ability to reorganize and re-socialize our people, meaning that if we're making the claim that prisons are obsolete or prisons are should be abolished, then what would take its place? And I think that um, for many people, um, folks look historically in the past and say that, you know, you know, as we sit here on like, you know, unseated, you know, Native American land, there was a time when there was no prisons. So there was a time there was no prisons. How do we how do we deal with and how do we um, have an experience with like, you know, community, um, you know, uh, of, you know, when people create harm in the community? Um, is it OK if I share one example that I, I witnessed in myself? Please. Okay, so um, in 1998, the same year that I went to um, uh, uh, the Black Radical Congress, I was in Chiapas, Mexico, um, doing solidarity work with the Zapatistas. Oh, hell yeah. Um, I was um, a member of this group called Estacion Libre, which was a people of color um, uh, 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 collective um, dedicated to bring people of color activists from the United States to have encounters with the Zapatistas. I was on the first delegation. <coughs> Excuse me. I went down there, um, spoke no Spanish. Um, this is pre-9-11. I had no passport. Um, oh, man. Yeah, exactly. So you know this is a long time ago. <laughs> I had literally my Hunter College ID and my birth certificate. <laughs> and somehow I got into Mexico. Um, show you how long ago that was. And, but I went down there because I wanted to learn from the Zapatistas and learn about how to think about revolutionary process, but also learn about this kind of like more internal work that they were doing. Um, and so when I got down there, um, they put us in the, this, no, this, this hacienda, um, you know, where we were like the, our delegation would do sleep, slept, slept. And inside the hacienda, was also a person who was accused of stealing a chicken. Um, this, the guy stole the chicken, he sold the chicken. Um, it caused a lot of harm in the community because obviously these are very poor peasants. We're talking about the outskirts of San Cristobal, no running water, uh, no no bathrooms. Um, the people maybe make like maybe a dollar a day um, in terms of like, in terms of, in terms of wages, if that. You know, mostly farmers. So, you know, you steal so much chicken is a major issue. Um, and so, you know, so the question was to the community, what we're we going to do with this person? You know, he created a harm and he did something wrong. And what I witnessed there was amazing. Like, um, they talked for hours, for hours and hours and hours. And that thing you said about time, like, it's really amazing because the same time that we're willing to give somebody 20 years, we're not willing to, like, 
give to healing our communities. And I saw the surplus of that time, the surplus value of that time, being reinvested back into the healing of that community in that conversation that folks were having on how to deal with the situation and how to bring all the parties who were harmed together to a table. And it was finally decided that he would do community work. Um, and he will help build a people's church to, to guys, because in the recognition that he not just, he didn't just harm the family, but he harmed the community as whole. And he was given an opportunity to apologize and to do work to reorient reorient to him, reorient himself and re-socialize himself in the community. And that's the kind of attitude and kind of vision that we can have for ourselves in terms of like how we deal with the kind of like conflicts within our community rather than always having to go to the police or having to send someone to jail. It's not easy because I obviously, you know, this requires us to have tremendous amounts of trust. But if you take that surplus time that we give to people in jail and we invest it into our communities and do the things that you outline and say that, and some of the things are preventative like daycare centers and you know, violent mediation and things of that nature, then, you know, that's an alternative to prison. And one of the things that I go to, one of the places I go to all the time um, when I'm very depressed and I'm not very wondering about the state of the movement, um, I go to where Angela Davis was held, uh, which is in New York City on 6th Avenue. Uh, It's the old women's house of detention, um, which now is no longer a prison, but a community garden and a public library, giving you the idea that um, a wall is just a wall and it can be broken down. That's awesome. That's amazing. I'm going to have to go there too. Yeah, go to yeah, go to the Jefferson Market um, Public Library, and and on the wing of it, you know, that along with the garden next to it was an extension of the New York City uh, Women's House of Detention, which. By the way, it was also the place where Afini Shakur was held, who was one of the Black Panther women in the Panther 21. And during the Stonewall Rebellion, um, Afini, along with um, transgender activists within the prison, uh, were throwing uh, burning objects from the prison down to the street in solidarity with the Stonewall riots. Just to ask a general question is like, how do you see these kind of tensions that we, the, the things we've talked about in the black radical tradition, how do you see these questions reemerging uh, again in, in the context of the George Floyd uprising? Um, and, and what do you make of, of Black Lives Matter, of that slogan, of that concept, of the popularity of it? So, uh, so let, me just, let me start again. So I think that, you know, when I talk about U.S., when I talk about racism in the United States, um, I, think, I think about three things. I think about um, economic exploitation, um, social exclusion from political processes, and personal degradation. And what you saw with what happened with George Floyd was all three of those 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 things all at once. Um, you know, the no, this is a, a man who was. Um, who was arrested for allegedly having a counterfeit $20 bill. Um, and, 
you know, and, you know, it was indicating, you know, issues around, you know, poverty, issues, issues around, you know, um, you know, all sorts of ways in which black people are excluded from the economy and, and exploited from the economy. Um, he was denied his basic uh, basic rights as a human being and as a citizen uh, by being detained. Um, again, around this whole question about like social exclusion and the ways in which black people are held up in this prison industrial complex. Um, you know, and, and the myriad of ways in which black people are discouraged from taking, taking part in politics. You know, when you talk about everywhere from like, you know, felony records of preventing people from being able to vote. But I think that what really got people was this personal degradation. Um, the fact that the officer had his knee on his, the back of his neck. Um, the fact that he had his, his, his hands tucked into his pockets. Um, the relaxed way in which he was so comfortable having his knee on top of a black man, you know, really speaks to like, like, you know, it gave a visual of 400 years of oppression for black people in this country. And I think that, you know, I think that people stood up and they rioted. Um, and I think that unlike a lot of other riots that, rebellions, I should say, that have happened in the past, like, you know, 40, 50, 60 years, this one was the one of the most broad interracial multicultural, multiracial rebellions in U.S. history. Um, and I think that's the case because the, because not only because of the egregiousness of the, the violence that George Floyd faced, I mean, he screamed out, I couldn't, I can't breathe, and screamed for his mother. But also that's the very fact of the matter is that the, the, the crisis itself is so general and so broad, right? And so, and so, and so, and so, and so deep and so wide that I think that everyone's feeling it, you know, um, you know, and like, you know, massive unemployment, um, massive disconnection of social institutions, um, you know, a conspiracy driven right wing president and an ineffectual um, Democratic Party that went out of his way to 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 hammer and to destroy um, one of the most broad progressive challenges that I ever faced in the form of Bernie Sanders. Right, and all that laid laid the groundwork for the for the, the frustration that led to those rebellions, to the to those nights of of of, of rebellions, and all this happened in Minneapolis, but happened all throughout the the United States, and ultimately all throughout the world. Um, this chant of Black Lives Matter uh, was 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 placed all over the world, and became this kind of umbrella symbol of of like of of the fight against injustice. I mean. We talk about like the Black Lives Matter uh, movement happening in Paris, amongst Black people in in Berlin, in London, um, you know, in, in you know in, in you know in, you know you know as far as Chile, um, you know, this is a global uh, rebellion that happened. Um, in terms of the question on Black Lives Matter as a slogan, I think it's a universal umbrella for people fighting against injustice. Um, I think that one of the contributions that Black Lives Matter made um, as a as 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 a, as a slogan itself. It really took us out of the post-racial discourse of the Obama years. So a lot of people don't remember, um, but you know when Obama was first elected in 2008, everyone was saying that you know America was, was post-racial, and this was the kind of the push towards like people to say that we don't talk about race anymore. Right, right. Like, you have a black person as president, let's not talk about race. Yeah, racism is solved. Yeah, racism is solved. But Black Lives Matter put race back on the agenda. 
And I, I think that as a slogan, it's as significant historically than when, when Malcolm X was able to turn us from Negro to black. Um, you know, because for the first time, for the first time in years, there was a there was a name and something that can express um, something for the young people. Um, and I think that now what we're seeing today um, is a culmination of a decade of protests. So from 2010 to 2020, um, we've seen multiple protests from, um, you know, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, the climate change movement, the Me Too movement, and all these protests are happening, and and and, and the people are strong, and they're and they're and they're and they're and they're militant. I mean, you know, this recent round of Black Lives Matter protests. I mean, people have been protesting for 90 days straight. And I was in Brooklyn the other day, um, in Central Brooklyn, and um, it was the first time I've been in Central Brooklyn since the epidemic, and the people felt different. You know, um, you know, there were very little police. Um, but people were holding hands. Um, I've never seen, um, my friend commented and I agree with him. I've never seen so many black teenagers in love together walking through the park. You know, um, and when I look at that and I see that in the face of all the brutality and of course all this conversation whether or not New York is dead or not and that bullshit. Um, I think about that in the sense that people have been transformed by this moment. Um, the question I think for us and in in who are doing this political work and thinking through this stuff is like, how do we take them further? Because obviously this crisis is going to be way deeper than we, anything we imagined. And it's going to require all of us in a lot of ways to be a super imaginative, but super organized, right? To create the, the, the conditions for our fight back. And obviously, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of things in our way, including, you know, folks within the corporate sphere that do not want to see a left alternative. Um, I can say right now that, um, you know, black people, you know, they talk about black women first, you know, like black people chose, black people and their allies chose Carmen Bush. Black people and their allies chose Rashida Tlaib. Uh, you know, uh, you know, working class people and their allies chose Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, you know, the vast majority of people support the rebellions that happened after George Floyd uh, 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 murder. So, you know, so I think that the sentiment of the people um, is much bigger than um, what 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 the imaginary is that's given to us by the mainstream uh, media. And I think there's an opportunity there to really do deep democratic work. And I think that's the work that we have to do now. It has to be deep and wide and democratic and pointed towards justice and uh, pointed also towards a very, you know, broad vision of socialism that allows people to, like, have their own opinions um, and their own worldview to operate within that. Um, and, you know, and I, th I think that, you know, I think that we have enough space, you know, in our, in our, in our contemporary language, in our technology, in our wherewithal within uh, how we deal with ourselves to give each other that space so we can all kind of figure out this, this how to overcome this nightmare together. So that's what I feel about the whole situation. Word. I think the slogan that I've heard chanted in the streets that really speaks to the universality of Black Lives Matter is all lives matter when Black Lives Matter. And it seems Amen. like we've been referencing that idea throughout. Um, Amen. So 
So you know, and the thing about it is, like, I think I think I sent you an article I wrote, but you know, like you know, Ball, Ball, James Baldwin once wrote that um, on the artist Buford Delaney that you know, black, you know, black is not the absence of light; it's it's a presence of light. It, it traps all light in. It, it's a trapping of all colors. So you know, so so I think that also speaks to what you said as well. You know, um, you know, like you no know, blackness is the rainbow. Okay, so big question, big finish here. So as we have discussed, right, racism is keeping the working class from uniting, which they need to do in order to th- to overthrow capitalism. However, capitalism. Uh, reinforces and reifies racial categories and racism constantly every day, which seems like an impossible contradiction, right? How do we resolve it? Um, What do anti-racist politics look like outside the framework of liberalism to the degree that um, we need them in order to unite the class as a class? Now, some people like, I don't know, my comrades, but not not my strategy in um, like bread and roses, Jacobin types, et cetera, think that the way to get us all out of this mess is, you know, racism played a role in getting into it. And, you know, I'm sorry that that happened, but that's done now. And now all we can talk about is um, class-wide demands that are universal in a way that, um, you know, the majority of white working class people will instantly recognize and understand to benefit them. Um, that doesn't really satisfy me, but, um, how, how, how do we resolve these contradictions? Like what, what do anti-racist politics look like going forward? I mean, you know, I mean, I don't, I mean, I know, I, I mean, like I'll, I'll say for first of all, like I'm not, I'm not involved in DSA. Um, you know, sorry in, to bring in, in my drama. It's not it's drama. Not, no, it's, no, a saying, like, it's a not, principle I'm debate. Not with, so I'm not familiar with with this, the position, I've heard things that I've seen on Twitter, but like you know, what I'm saying, but like what I also see like aliens on Twitter, so I can't you know, say <laughs> I can't see what what what's what on regards to that stuff. I do have comrades within the Afro Socialist Caucus who I have a deep abiding respect for, um, you know, and I've supported, um, you know, strategically uh, DSA candidates um, across the country when it comes to. Running, running, running against uh, you know particular individuals. So oh, yeah, for least, sure. Yes, certainly. Um, but I'm not involved in like the political mechanicism of that. And, and I but should what say, I say that what, what, I'm not. I don't mean this as a critique of everyone in DSA. I think this no, is a debate. No, that's saying, but I just want to. I just want to be clear on that because you know, um, because like I, I don't because 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 I I would be speaking from a place of ignorance. But I would, but but I, but I get what you're saying, and I, I'm going to interpret it in this way, right? The way that I'll interpret it is this way, right? Um, I think that for me, that there's there's two ways I look at it, right? If I go to a hospital and I'm having a heart attack, you wouldn't give me uh, insulin. You would give me a, you would give me a defibrillator, right? So like so like so why would so why would you have one overall strategy for one person uh, if if we have a different level of what's going on, right? And so this issue around racism, like I, I know saying like I, you know it's 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 personal degradation, is economic exploitation, is social in is social exclusion, 
So those three things need to be taken care of in terms of a matrix, in terms of this, you know, being able to adjust those things. So what does that mean? That means that, you know, in terms of personal degradation, you know, that means that, you know, no more Confederate monuments, more black history. You know what I'm saying? And when you introduce more black history, you're introducing, like, you know, Cedric Robinson's critique and the critique of, like, of, like, you know, of, of, of people like W.E.B. Du Bois is that, you know, black history is global history, right? And so we have a better understanding of that. That's not necessarily making a concession to a universal demand, but it's making a concession to the, to the peoplehood in a very specific reality in which people in, in the African diaspora have been harmed by a very racist education system, right? Um, same thing with medicine, right? Um, you know, black people, um, rightfully so, have a deep distrust of the medical industry. Um, you know, so, you know, um, you know, and this is because of like years and years of racism. Things like the Tuskegee experiment and like, you know, ways in which black women specifically have been like, you know, mistreated, you know, in terms of like, um, you know, pregnancy. I mean, black women have the highest um, mortality rates, um, infant mortality rates in the world. You know what I'm saying? So that demands that in terms of a, in terms of a situation, in terms of a strategy, in terms of the way we we deal with things, that we have to like really look at looking to what does it mean and, and really and really delve deeper into these questions around how racism has impacted our health and things of that nature. Um, and the same thing with economics. I mean, you know, um, you know, like you know, like you know, black people are still doing the worst jobs for the least amount of money. First one fired. Uh, last one hired. Um, so, so these are all ways in which we can do that. But I think that that understanding of that also requires us to have an understanding is that as we fight for these things, does not necessarily mean that I'm taking away from what you're from from what you from what you need, right? In, in fact, it's like it's enhancing that, you know. Um, and I think that you know, I think that the thing about it is that I'll say this much: I think that sometimes. When I think about materialism, I think that people who say that, you know, we shouldn't talk about racism at all, we should talk about intersectionality, they do a disjust, they do a, they do a, a, dis, a disservice of Marxism in a lot of ways, because I feel that you're not really able to talk about the whole story in terms of human experiences, right? And being able to, to really discuss the ways in which people people's needs are you know are, are important in terms of being taken care of, and, and you know and that you know and that they, people have specificalities around their needs, right? And so um, I'm not exactly sure I'm being I'm being super clear about this, but I think that what I would say is this, and this is closing. I mean, maybe someone in closing is that I think we need I think we need a, a I think we need a broad-based strategy that really really takes takes into account all the harm that capitalism has done to us right and i think that and i think that happens in terms of various questions um i think that people should support all those demands right and see them not as competing as competing but as part and parcel of an overall vision of liberation and i think that that's i think that that's where um you know, a lot of that the empathy comes from and a lot of understanding comes from. Um, and that, you know, and this is, and I think this is a, uh, you know, a, you know, a, a new opportunity for us. I, I've never seen like, you know, the ability for, 
for uh, for us to really kind of overcome the uh, racialized nightmare than now. But um, but I think there's a lot of work to do, and I think there's a lot of work, not only in terms of political sphere, but also what I point to also earlier is a question of like reorienting ourselves and resocializing ourselves to be able to work together um, and overcome a lot of distrust and, uh, and fear. Um, and I think that that's a lot of the work that we do. Um, like, yeah, there's the idea that if we talk about race too much, if we talk about racism or immigrants' rights or whatever, it's going to alienate this like broad uh, white working class base. And I just don't think that's true. I, no, that's not true at all. You know, it's just a, you know, it's just a Jamie, I'll tell you this much. I think white people are radically different than when I was growing up. And I think black people are different. And I'll tell you why. Your generation, because I'm assuming y'all in your what, early 30s, 20s, uh, some of us. <laughs> I'm 40, so I don't know. I'm 44, right? Okay. And so, like, so, like, so, like, I grew up in the 80s, and like, I grew up in a time when, like, you know, still in the 1980s, if there was a black person on TV, they wrote about it in Ebony magazine, and they were like, "Ev LaSalle is gonna be on St. Elsewhere. Be sure to watch it." So they let it, so we can let them know that black people are watching. And so they could be more black people on TV, right? Yeah. And this in this generation, y'all have grown up with like black superheroes and black people like black people in leadership and like Obama. And like and like, you know, and like and I think that in a lot of ways, that cultural revolution has been like significant in the ways in which we talk about race and the ways we understand race and stuff like that. I think the double-edged sword within that, too, is the fact that you, your generation has also been the one that has seen the, the least amount of union activity right. in the economy unions. I think you guys have seen the, 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 the lowering of like public housing and, uh, and affordable housing. And so, that, so the materialism that, that allows for more of these type of of like conversations and more of this kind of solidarity is is much is much less, um, you know. And I think that I think I think that I think that's I think that that's the contradiction. And I think that that's where there's a there's there's a, there's there's a renewing or a, a rebuilding that needs to happen. Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people want to talk about there's a certain black public intellectual. That a lot of people want to talk about that that was mentioned in New York Times recently, and oh I won't God. mention his name. My mom sent me that article. I was like, "This is serious now." My mom doesn't need to see this shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like you know, and like, to me, like it's funny because I was thinking about it today, and I was thinking like to myself, I was like, "I'd rather talk about Manning Marble, um, who was also a member of the DSA, who was also African American, and." His whole entire thing was like, you know, democracy needs to be deepened, you know, and so, you know, and so, you know, so what does it mean to to engage in, you know, like, you know, what does it mean to engage in, in democratic practices in a community that's been oppressed by uh, uh, police violence in the prison industrial complex? What does it mean to create democratic avenues for people who've been cast out of the political system, including voting. Right? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's I think there's a group of people, I think there's some people 
who think democracy is robbery rules or order. And I think there's people who think of democracy as a constitutive practice to reclaim and renew and to rebuild a people. And I think that, you know, when we think about democracy as a constitutive practice of building up a people, then that's a powerful thing. And I think on those levels, the Black Liberation Movement, on that on that bridge, the Black Liberation Movement can meet with the movement for democratic socialism and create the conditions to make the ruling class tremble. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That's as good a place as I need to leave it, I think. Indeed. Right. Um, it, it reminds me of a, a speech by our friend Idris at Red May um, where he said... There's a lot of talk about how to end racism, especially within corporate and academic circles. We saw how to end racism in the streets the first weeks after George Floyd was murdered. All right, Kazembe, thanks so much for coming on, man. This is great. Okay, wonderful. Thank you for having me. that you and me survived For we tried living on streets that weren't giving And laughed and cried in youth we died and didn't know my friends, my history, the memory shall carry me until we're free. The times we saw we didn't deserve, hostility we couldn't see, it was absurd. But we gave joy, each girl and boy, so innocent our future bent against the wind. Yes, my friends, my history, the memory shall carry me until we're free. Desperate kisses in alleyways, the future days they lay to waste our little lives. The concrete park, a stab in the dark, to rest our soul and we were old before we grew. Oh yes, my friends, oh, yes, my friend. our, history. our history, the memory shall carry me until we're free. Some friends forgotten and some are gone. How dare they touch our little spot with what they've done. I miss them all, but the future calls, demanding we set ourselves free as we should be. Oh yes, my friends. The memory shall carry me until we're free.